morning, everybody. Man, I want you to look next to you at that place where somebody ought to be sitting and think about the people who are out there taking advantage of the last couple weekends of summer before the kids go back to school and then give them a hard time when you see them next. I get it, though. I mean, it's always conventional wisdom when you when you have a church is is let's not try and plan anything. Let's not try and do anything over the summer. Let's just lay low because people don't want to engage. But I don't agree with that. I've never agreed with that. Um, the ministry in the kingdom goes on, and it doesn't matter if the kids are about to go to school or if it's Labor Day weekend or what it is. And so we never take any time off. So when Pastor Gabe talks about all the different things that are going on, that's, that's current things. And so I just ask you all to stay engaged, look at the things that, that are of interest to you, and participate in those. Because it's really the only reason things tend to seem a little low during the summer is because people just go, ah, there's nothing going on. There's tons of stuff going on. And we put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into making those things happen. So um, anyway, just want you to to stay engaged, and, and everybody's going back to school, and all, everything's getting back to normal, so in the next few weeks, I'm sure this dynamic will, will change, um, but I love seeing you guys here. I love seeing new faces every weekend, so if you are newer, and maybe I missed you, um, stick around after service for a few minutes, and let me know. I would love to talk with you. If you want to go get a coffee, if you want to chat, anything, I am always available for that. I want to get to know you. I want to get to know our people. Um, that's how you are a community, is by knowing one another and helping support one another. So starts here, so I, I am available for that. Hey, let's get into our message. Um, welcome out there online, wherever you are. Glad that you're here. We're in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to turn this just a little bit so that I can see what's up there too, in case I lose my... Everybody can see that well enough, hopefully. All right. So we're in the Gospel of Mark. I always have to look at what are, what's our, ser, our series because we haven't been in it for very long, the Gospel of Mark, right? We've been, we've been in it for a while. But I hope that you guys are getting a lot out of it. There's so much meat in this. You know, the Gospel of Mark is about the servanthood of Jesus and the fact that he was able to do these things with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then that power of the Holy Spirit gets transferred to us. excuse me, enabling us to go out and do the things that we see Jesus doing, the things we see the disciples doing. It's one thing to read scripture and go, man, those guys were heroes. Um, But you're given that very same power in the spirit. And we're given that power, not just so that we can say, hey, that's cool. I want to put it on the shelf and look at it. We're given that power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so that we can go out and we can do things that are never going to be possible in our own human strength. So we should all be functioning in the kingdom well above what our human strength will allow. And if we all did that, imagine imagine what this world would be like. Imagine what our own backyards would be like if we all did that. And I think part of my job is to making sure is to make sure that we all understand that that Holy Spirit dwells within us and that we have a responsibility then in the kingdom. So let's get into this message. I think this message is going to is going to fit very nicely into that idea. If you weren't here last week or the last couple of weeks, um, we're, still, we're still in the temple. We're still in the temple courtyard, and Jesus is just getting barraged by all kinds of different people uh, with questions. And the questions aren't, they're not genuine questions. They're real questions, but they're not genuine. They're not done, in, in other words, with the heart, like, I want to understand. They're done to try and trap him. They're done with an intent to where I have, I have my little pet question and I'm going to try and trap you. Anybody ever experienced that on any level? Somebody comes to you with a super in-depth knowledge of a particular thing. Maybe it happens at your work and they come up and they ask you a question that seems out of the blue and you're like, do you really want my answer or are you just trying to trap me? And the important thing is to know the difference. Now, that's not to say if somebody comes to you and they're trying to trap you in a question that you should treat them any differently. But how you answer sometimes depends on your 
perception of where they're coming from. And that's exactly what's going on here. So all these different people trying to hammer away at Jesus, trying to trap him. Some are trying to trap him into something that's illegal as far as Rome is considered so that they can arrest him. Some are trying to trap him in things that, that are theological falsehoods or mistakes that they can then point and say, yeah, you see, he's not as smart as everybody's saying he was. And that's where they are. So the last thing that we see is we see this group of Sadducees from last week. And the Sadducees, they don't believe in resurrection of the dead. And they don't believe in angels. And they don't believe in a lot of things that Jesus teaches about. And yet, they decide that they're going to start asking him questions in this public courtyard setting. Explain to us how it's going to work in heaven if a woman has been married multiple times, whose husband is she going to be? And he goes through then the teaching. Now, in light of the way that their heart is when they're asking these questions, Jesus knows that they're questioning. They're asking him to weigh in on something they don't even believe in. So they're just trying to trap him. And his final answer, the last thing that he says, was trying to get them to understand that the way things work here on earth, the, the conventions that we have on earth, aren't necessarily the way they have to work in heaven. And the idea of marriage is one of those. It's about the supernatural power of God, and it's not contained by the conventions of the world. And he focuses on them, focuses them on the power of God and on what the marriage covenant of the Lamb means versus just the earthly marriage covenant, which is just a reflection of of that. But the last thing he says, Mark 12, 27, he says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Now we weren't there. We can't hear his tone of voice and all this sort of thing. There's no emojis to help us understand. Smiley face where, where his heart was when he said that. But when he points out, he goes, you are mistaken. That gives us a clue that he understands that they're adversarial in their questioning. Today, it's going to be a little bit different. We're in Mark 12, verses 28 through 40. So if you have your Bible, grab that. If not, don't worry. This is a great place to bring your Bible, by the way. If you're wondering, like, I've got this cool Bible. Where can I take it? Your Bible wants to come on a field trip here to church. So bring it. Bring it. But I'll read them to you, so don't worry about that. Mark 12, 28 starts out this way. One of the scribes came up. Remember, we talked about who the scribes were. One of the scribes came up and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well. Let me do, before I go further, set the scene here. So a scribe who, remember, is, is well-versed in legal matters. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But he's off to the side, and he, he comes upon them. He's hearing them arguing in the courtyard. And you can see he's probably just standing off to the side and listening to this dynamic that's going on. And so he comes up. And then starts asking Jesus. And just, again, just kind of out of the blue, one of the scribes came up and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is foremost of all? Okay, now if I ask you, what commandment is foremost of all, what would you say? You're right. It was kind of a general murmur, but I think... I, I think most of you are right. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? We've, we've heard teaching on that over and over again. But what if you're one of these scribes? The scribe is well-versed in Old Testament, what we call Old Testament, law. What would he say the greatest commandment is? And when he asks this question, he's not asking, Jesus, what are you going to teach about what the greatest commandment is? He's saying, what is it? And so he's referring, most likely, to Mosaic Law. What does it say in Mosaic Law? And he's asking Jesus to weigh in on this. So let's look at that scripture just a little bit more closely here. Put that back up if you could, Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them arguing, okay, what, is, what commandment is foremost of all? That word foremost, we're going to talk about a lot of Greek, by the way, and a little bit of Hebrew today. Um, so bear with me, but it, it really, really changes the way this dynamic works. Foremost, that word foremost translates in the Greek as protos, right? It, it's 
A lot of the words we speak about uh, that we use in daily language come from Greek, and that's the root, obviously, of prototype, protos. But the definition of that is not first on the list. It means the most important, okay? Not necessarily first in order, but the most important, the primary, the chief is what a lot of translations use. What is the chief commandment? And prior to that, when he says he recognized that he had answered them well, that phrase answered them well is actually just one word in Greek. We spread it out, but it's kalos. And the word kalos means praiseworthy or honorably. It doesn't necessarily just mean he gave the correct answer. It means you answered him in a thoughtful, praiseworthy, and honorable way. And so with the scribe seeing that, it gave him the opening. It's that he, he doesn't say like we would say now, he was asking you a question and, man, you shut him down hard. How many of us have heard that? Oh, he shut him down and he shot down his argument. That's not this. You can be right, but you're not leaving the door open for any discussion. You're not leaving the door open or an opportunity for a heart to say, you know what? This might be a safe place for me to ask a question. How we answer makes a difference. And that's what we're looking at right here. So Jesus answers honorably. Now this scribe then feels like he can come up and, answer, and ask this question. Now we think that the scribe's there to attack. And in fact, Matthew says that that might be what has happened. Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. in the parallel account, Matthew says that this man was a lawyer sent to test Jesus. That might have been what the original intent was. But if you remember, scribes were, again, scribes were, we would call them lawyers. It's probably as close as we can get. They drafted documents. They did contracts for marriage, divorce, all this sort of thing. But the scribe was probably also a member of the Pharisees. Most of them were. We don't know that for sure, but most of them were. But they were experts in Mosaic law. Okay, Mosaic law was essentially the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, This guy would have known that backwards and forwards and inside out. But then, being a Pharisee, also very adept at adding layers to that law. If this much law is good, this much law is better. Remember that? So they're experts in adding on to those laws. So that's where they are. Now, in the Bible, there are many, many scribes that are mentioned Anybody, this is Bible trivia for all you guys and you guys out there. Comment in the, in the chat boards if you know the answer to this. Who is the most, probably the most famous scribe in all of Scripture? He's got his own book of the Bible, I'll tell you that. Anybody know? I heard it from a person I would expect to know the answer. It's Ezra. Ezra's... <laughs> Ezra 7.11 actually describes Ezra like this. Now, this is the copy of the letter which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned it in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. He's describing right there exactly what a scribe is. But not all scribes were honorable men. Not all of them. Much like in our legal profession today. Most, the vast majority, very much are, but there are some, especially if you're on the opposite end, right? But listen to what Nahum says. This is another, another one of the prophets, Nahum 3.17, describes them like swarms of locusts that settle on the walls on a cold day, but when the sun appears, they fly away and no one knows where. Nahum doesn't have a very high opinion of scribes. But, so that's, that's where we are, this particular scribe. We don't know where he falls on that spectrum. But it's not for us to figure out, and that's what we're going to see Jesus teaching us here. This, the question now that this scribe posts, it's not a random one. Remember, what's the question? Which is the greatest commandment of all? It's not a random question. I have taught in the past about the different rabbinical schools of Hillel and Shammai. If you remember any of those teachings, then you might remember that they constantly argued back and forth on different matters of the law. Not only that, but 
adding things to the law, adding um, different nuance and higher levels and different hierarchies to the law. And one of the things that the two schools, Hillel and Shammai, constantly argued about was they took all the commandments of God. Anybody know how many commandments there are? 613. Uh, Mosaic laws. And then there's numerous, numerous, numerous oral laws that are added on top of that. But they made a, they made a sport out of organizing them in order of importance. Okay, so they would argue back and forth, where does, where, does, um, where does circumcision fall on the order of importance? Where does this fall? Where does that fall? And they would argue back and forth. And so when this scribe asks this question, he's actually asking Jesus to weigh in on a dispute between these two schools. And we don't know what school he belongs to. But they had different things. So they would order them, and the, you had great commands, and then you had more minor commands. Great commands were things like observance of the Sabbath, circumcision, um, rules regarding the sacrifice and the offering, things like that. Those were major rules. One of the things that they included in their their list of um, great commands were phylacteries, the use of and how to employ phylacteries. Is there anybody here who knows what a phylactery is? Okay. Not many. Some of us like, that sounds like, I don't know, do you get that at, at, uh, at Rite Aid? Or is that a phylactery? Let me show you what a phylactery is. This is, <coughs> okay, a phylactery. Now, this is a drawing. I don't know how well you can see it, but they're, they're also called telephon in, in Hebrew. But they're worn by Jewish men during prayer. And they wear them twice a day because they pray pray twice a day. And this is all from Scripture commanding them to do this in the morning and in the evening. And what they would do is that they write Scripture inside the Scripture that we're going to quote here in just a minute. They write it on a piece of paper and they put it inside the box. And the box then is on your forehead. So when Scripture says, wear them on your forehead, wear them on your arm, that's what they're doing. The other one is tied around their arm. Now that's a drawing if you can't see that well. Here's what it looks like in... In, in real life, this uh, uh, Israeli soldier. And so he's part of his twice-a-day prayer. He's got one of them wrapped around his forearm there, and the other one is worn on his head. And you can see that it's to this day. This isn't an ancient-only practice. Um, this still continues. This is one of the things that they would continue to argue about. How do we do this? When do we do this? This actually comes from Deuteronomy 6.8. It says, tie them as symbols on your hands and buy them on your foreheads. But then, of course, being Pharisees and being scribes, the larger and more audacious the phylactery that you had on your forehead or on your arm, the holier you were. Like anything else, they would take it to extreme, right? All right, you can take down, you can take down that picture. I just show you that some of these things that come from Scripture are, are ancient practices that continue Uh, to this day, and they all come out of Mosaic law, or most of them do. Some of them are added. So listen to, again, let's go back. When when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? Listen to what Jesus responds. Now this is, I would call these guys a group of religious law enforcement officers, for lack of a better word. They're all together, and they all have their different angles that they're after. But listen to what he answers. Mark 12, 29 to 31, I'll read it for you. Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I think most of you had at least a version of that when I ask that question, right? We, we've known that. We've been taught that for a long time. Um, question, is that from the Ten Commandments? Is that found in the Ten Commandments anywhere? It's found actually a couple places, uh, a few places. Exodus 20, um, it's repeated again in Deuteronomy. Um, Leviticus 19 has some of it, but it's all, all comes from that Mosaic law. Different pieces brought 
together. So let's look at it a little bit closer, verse by verse, and let's see what Jesus says about this, and then we're going to make sense of it. So stay with me. Mark 12, 29, Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. He's quoting straight out of Deuteronomy 6, 4. So if you want to go and look at where this came from, look at Deuteronomy 6, 4, or all of Deuteronomy 6 and 4 and 5 and 6, in fact. But this is part of what's called the Shema prayer. And when those men got together, the devout Hebrew men, and they prayed twice a day, they would pray the Shema prayer. That's what they would do. You would have the phylactery as part of that, um, but that's the name of the prayer. Practice of saying that prayer in particular began about 500 BC, at least. Probably older than that, but that's when it began. And opening his answer, can you think about it? If you're a devout Jew and you pray that twice a day, every day, without fail, that's what you do. And then when Jesus responds and he opens up with lines that come directly from that shame or prayer, what would it do to you? Probably like, maybe disarm you a little bit. Like, okay, maybe there is some common ground here. I'm not sure. Still not sure I like this guy, but he's speaking from what we pray twice a day. Mark 12, 30. And he continues and he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. What does that look like? If you were going to love something with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, what would that look like? Can you imagine how all-encompassing that would be? This isn't just on Tuesdays or on Sundays or every now and then or when you're in the mood or you're not tired. This is all-encompassing. And let's look at it a little bit closer. Again, can you put that back up there again? Sorry, Mark 12, 30. We're going to look at the individual words. This is where, this is where translations matter. And it's going to paint a picture that's bigger than I think some of us think it is. First of all, love. We're going to look at these words in Hebrew, or uh, Greek, I'm sorry. The word Greek, love, is agapeo. And agapeo, which is the root of agape, and we talk about agape kind of love. But the definition is a discriminating affection which involves choice and selection. Meaning you have, you have weighed it, you have thought about it, and you have chosen to love. Okay, so you shall love the Lord your God. You choose, you make a choice. Nobody's making you. You make a conscious decision to love. With all of your heart, that word heart, cardia. Guess what that's the root of? Cardia, but the definition is this. It's your character. It's your inner self is what cardia is. So your, your very character is geared towards loving God. The word soul, suke. Sometimes it's pronounced psyche. It's kind of the, the root of that. But really, it's your soul. And the, dis, the definition of this is your distinct identity, specifically your God-breathed gift of life. In other words, it, what's, it's what makes you individually and uniquely you. That's what that is. That's your soul. Now, your mind, your mind, dianoia, is what that is. And the definition is your intellect, and your understanding, okay? And then the last word, strength, iskus. The definition is all of your ability, all of your ability. So if we take all this, uh, Benson Commentary, which is one of the commentaries I use, calls all these the united powers of the soul. I think that's a great way to look at them. If I put this, I... I Spent some time pondering this and like, how, do, how would I say this if I were just going to say it in, in, in our common language? And it's this. Choose with all of your strength to love God enough to let your very thoughts reflect the character breathed by him into you. That's what it looks like when you say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. It's all-encompassing. That means God breathed it into you. 
And so then you choose to let that be what's in your heart and let that be what you reflect to the world. It's a choice that we have to make. It's nothing that we're forced to do. And if you can do that, easier said than done, right? But if you can, the next verse will be very, very easy. It'll be natural. Mark 12, 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's hard. Is loving your neighbor as yourself easy for any of us? Does anybody find that really easy? Did you read my notes? Remember she said that. I'm not pointing at you, but you're exactly right. It's so easy if they're nice. It's so easy if they believe like we do. It's easy if they belong to the same party that we do, if they think like we do, if we share common, then it's easy. Then it's easy. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18 talks about this just a little bit more in detail. Again, this is, this is Old Testament law. It says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may certainly rebuke your neighbor, but you are not to incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor hold any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's where that, that's where that comes from. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's Levitical law. But Paul later echoed it and actually amplified it a little bit when he said to the Ephesians, when he wrote to the Ephesians, he said, in your anger, do not sin. Okay, again, we're getting a whole stack of things that are easier said than done. It's easy to think it's a good idea. It's easy. It's easy to teach it. It's easy to hear it, but putting it into practice with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your understanding, that's hard. So now, Okay, this is where, for the rest of this section here, this is where it takes this dramatic detour from the previous encounters that Jesus has had with the Sadducees and the elders and the Pharisees and the priests and everybody that's, that's hammering away at him. This is the scribe's answer. When, when he, the scribe asks, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answers this. This is the scribe's answer. Mark 12, 32 and 33. And the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have truly stated that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, remember I taught about false flattery back in, in earlier in, in Mark 12? This isn't false flattery. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy and paraphrasing part of Hosea. Hosea 6.6, 6, for those of you who want to look it up. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What just happened here? Rather than them to come back and challenge him further, this scribe is like, well said. And not only does he say, well said, but he goes, Loving God and loving neighbors is so much more important than sacrifice, which is what the law is all about, at least the way the Pharisees practiced it. Scripture doesn't say this, but I believe that the next interaction and what we see here indicates to me that Jesus is starting to recognize maybe just a seed, maybe just a small ember of faith in this man. Not just law, but faith, a deeper understanding that goes beyond just the words on the page. And I think Jesus is recognizing this because the way he answers in Mark 12, 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, listen to this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared any longer to question him. What a dramatic change for Jesus to say to this to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He's not saying you're there yet, but you're not far. You almost got it. 
Now remember, I, I just thinking about this. Christ's kingdom, Christ's kingdom is near to us all. It's near to us all. Whether you are a repentant sinner or an unrepentant one, whether you're a seeker or not, you're, maybe you're totally blind. Christ's kingdom is still near to us all. And it is our responsibility as followers of Christ. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, it's your responsibility to use the gifts given you to nurture that ember of light, to fan that into flame rather than to crush it with legalese. That's what's so dramatic about this interaction is this is the first time in all these people that have been questioning him that somebody came to him genuinely wanting to know an answer. Genuinely wanting. What I talked about at the very beginning, you have that person who hits you with a question and you know they just want to tell you how much they know. They don't want your answer. They're just waiting for you to stop talking so they can explain how much they know or maybe how wrong you are. Versus then that discernment going, this person actually wants to know. And we could look at him as a scribe and just go immediately, okay, he's in the enemy camp. So I'm just going to be on my defense. I'm going to be as short as I can and just get out of here. Appearances would tell you that. But this, this scribe is not far from the kingdom, and Jesus sees that. and says, you're not far. So I love that. I love that. Now, very abruptly, and then no one dared question him any longer, Jesus then turns and starts teaching in the courtyard again. And what he teaches may seem like a whole separate subject here, but it's not. Listen to this. Mark 12, 35, and Jesus responded and began saying, as he taught in the temple area, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Okay, this is a question. In the temple courtyard, teaching was always kind of back and forth. You'd have different groups around, and they're all just debating and asking random questions and teaching back and forth. That's what happened. So this wasn't out of character here, but he's asking, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David. It's a rhetorical question that he's going to use to teach on. Now remember, Christ, when he says the Christ is the son of David, Christ means the anointed one, not Jesus. He's not re referring to himself at this point. Christ means the anointed one. And son of David is a very common messianic title. What he's, what's happening here is Jesus is pointing out the fact that you're teaching these things without any understanding. Not the particular scribe we're dealing with, but the other scribes. He says, the scribes. Now, Jesus posts another question to the crowd that's nearby, the crowd consisting mostly of self-appointed experts. Mark 12, 36, 37. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, important, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself, verse 37, Jesus says, David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. That's from Psalm 110, by the way, if you want to read Psalm 110. That's where that quote comes from. It's recognized, even then it was recognized as a messianic prophetic scripture. But here's where, to look at this, here's where Hebrew matters. Remember, I told you once before, Jesus is not all about, well, let's look at the tense and, and parse these words out to get the meaning. But here's what's important for us here today. In this time and in this setting, they would have recognized what these words meant. When Jesus said, when Jesus said the Lord said to my Lord, quoting Scripture, they would have known what that meant. We have to do a little study. So that's what I'm going to point out to you here. First of all, the first Lord, <clears throat> where it says, the Lord said to my Lord. The first one is the Hebrew word, and it's Yehovah. It's, it's actually spelled Y-H-V-H. We've added the vowels to make it something we can pronounce. But it's Yehovah. It's the proper name of the God of Israel. Proper name of the God of Israel. So he's saying, the, the God of Israel said to my Lord. The second, my Lord, is a different word. It's actually the Hebrew word Adon, which is the root of Adonai. Um, it's plural. It's a plural word. And 
It also means God, but it's come to mean the Messiah. Okay, so it actually is another aspect. It's the plural form of God. So he's saying, sorry, he's saying that why would David refer to the Messiah as his son? David would never have dared to call them the coming Messiah his son. And Jesus here in his teaching is not pointing out that they're wrong, but he's asking, how, how would David call God or the coming Messiah his son? So he's asking them this question to help them get their mind around, like, how would David have known this? The clue to how David would have known this falls in the very first sentence of Mark 12, 36, David himself said in the Holy Spirit. It's the only way David would have understood what this is. And what Jesus is pointing out is those of you who don't understand that the Holy Spirit can speak to you and that you should be seeking that, which Pentecost hadn't happened, none of that had happened yet, but he's telling them that's the only way David would have known that. It's called, we call it the rhema word, of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God speaking directly to you, showing you things that you would have no other way to know. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. Jewish teaching at that time, well, and, and still for the most part, is that there's no general indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So they may have, they refer to the Spirit of God, but more in a, it's God's power sort of a way, not a separate and distinct being with a separate and distinct purpose in your heart. So this teaching that he's doing is strictly for those, as Jesus would say, with ears to hear. But he's talking to this scribe, and he's talking right in front of this scribe that he just had an interaction with. So now, Jesus, after dropping that, now Jesus finishes this teaching basically by urging the crowd, be careful who you listen to. He says this, Mark 12, 38 to 40, And in his teaching, he was saying, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like personal greetings in the marketplaces and seats of honor in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive all the more condemnation. Now, this may seem completely out of place, until you go back to Jesus' answer about the greatest commandment. Now, when, when they ask, Mark 12, 29, when, they ask, when the scribe asks, what is the foremost commandment, what does Jesus say? What's his answer? Okay, love the Lord your God. But what does he say before that? Hear, Israel. He says, hear, Israel. Mark 12, 29, the very first sentence. The foremost is, hear Israel! Exclamation point. It's not a comma. It's not dot, 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 to be continued. It's here. Before you even get to loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself, the foremost commandment is here. That word here translates in the Greek as akuo, and what it means is to hear God's voice prompting you. Hear God's voice prompting you, something which they had no concept of what that is. Even though the Scripture said, David said in the Holy Spirit, how would they have understood the context? So, all right, so let's make sense of all this in today's world. What's the Scripture about? Is it truly about what the greatest commandment is? That's the interaction. That's the question. But what is it really, truly about? Here's what I think the Spirit showed me it is. It's common ground. It's agreement. Jesus could have seen this scribe as an enemy, as an adversary, like he saw all the other ones, but he didn't. He left an opening. And when he saw that glimmer of faith, that glimmer of, look, you... You genuinely want to know an answer here. 
This is a genuine discussion. Jesus doesn't attack him like he's one of the enemies. He finds common ground. And after finding this common ground, he is able to then say to this scribe, you are not far from the kingdom. And by when he says you're not far from the kingdom, he means you're not far from embracing the gospel. So our message here is, number one, proper understanding of Old Testament scripture is vital to understanding the gospel message of Jesus. We can't just throw out the Old Testament and go, that's all judgment and old stuff and it smells musty and I don't want anything to do with it. Let's just talk about the gospel only, all New Testament. I don't think you can do that and have a full grasp. This scribe who know who knew the Old Testament law, Old Testament scripture very, very well, backwards and forwards. He saw this in Jesus and he said, I get it. I get it now. Loving the Lord your God, loving your neighbor as yourself is only possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is so much more important than sacrifice and following the letter of the law. That's what this scribe finally gets. And really, the most supernatural act of all this is after this barrage of attacks, when this last scribe comes up, Jesus doesn't take the, the defensive. How many of us would do that? Oh, here comes another one. You're in the same place. Remember, all these interactions happened in the same place. One after another after another, just battering away at Jesus. And he never gets defensive. And when there's that one that has a soft heart to actually hear, he's there. And he can share a gospel message that will be received in a way that it's received. Remember, the first, the foremost commandment is hear Israel. So that tells us the first principle we need to understand even before loving God and even before loving our neighbor as ourselves is to hear and obey the voice of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely critical. And all the laws, all of the scriptures in general are going to be impossible to live by human willpower alone. No matter how much you want to, it's impossible. We need the understanding of who God is and his spirit within each of us. That is critical. That's why the foremost commandment, hear Israel, exclamation point, full stop. The rest is not possible without hearing. Paul wrote this to the Romans, Romans 13.10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. We don't quote that one very often, but I love that. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, just in case you're one of those who likes to look for loopholes, do we have any attorneys here or people that just like debaters, debate club in high school, anything like that, where you like to look for loopholes? I've taught this so many times. Jesus is not about loopholes. He's about taking it even to a higher level. But in case you're looking for a loophole about who consists, who's my neighbor? So who do I have to love? Okay, love God. I'll agree with you on that. Now, who's my neighbor though? Mark 12, 31, the second of this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment than these. Speaking of commandments, two of the 10 commandments refer to how to treat your neighbor. So it's kind of a big deal. Now, in the Hebrew, when the Ten Commandments were given and it said neighbor, that Hebrew word is reah. And reah means a friend, a companion. It's an intimate, reciprocal relationship. In other words, to boil that down, it meant your literal neighbor, the person in your village, the person in your tribe, the person that you had to interact with on a daily basis in order to survive. That's what was being talked about right here. But just like Jesus always does, he takes that law and he takes it to another level. And so when Jesus is asked, a, a different scribe in Luke 10 asks Jesus to define what a neighbor is. Anybody remember what his reply is? He actually goes into teaching the parable of the Good Samaritan. What were Samaritans at that point? They were dirty, 
They were infidels. They were half-breeds. They were to be stayed away from. You couldn't trust them. That's what a Samaritan was. They were unclean and absolutely outside of God's covenant. Cultural differences, religious differences, every way you could be different and unacceptable, that's what they were. And Jesus says, your neighbor, that's your neighbor. So I want to challenge you, is your neighbor the person sitting next to you in this context? Or is your neighbor that guy? That guy at church that you're like, I never see eye to eye with him, so I'm not even going to talk to him. That guy that you work with who always has a contrary point of view, who always wants to argue. That neighbor at your home. That friend you have. That relative you have where you're always button heads. Is that who your neighbor is? I would say, Jesus would say, that's the neighbor that we are supposed to love with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, and all of our understanding. That's who. And I want to take it a step further. The person you see on social media, the person you see in elected office that you don't agree with, Can you love that person? Think about it. The person that just came to your mind when I said in elected office. Can you love that person? Can you love that person with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength and all of your understanding? In other words, to the very core of your being, can you reflect the love of Christ in you to that person? Can you? That's what we're commanded to do. That's the greatest commandment. And so for many of us in this world today, our ability to have that kind of love for our neighbor is dependent on the degree of respect we have for that neighbor's point of view and for their cultural and social choices. So the last question then, and I just want to put this to you before we pray, can you choose to reflect the love of God inside you to someone who does not share your beliefs, your culture, or your interests. Because that's what love for your neighbor is. And Jesus says that is the greatest commandment of all. How would our world be different if we could truly do that? See, that's what the story here is that's going on right here. Jesus softens this man's heart by seeing he genuinely wants to know. He's adversarial at first, but he genuinely wants to know. So I'm going to love him. I'm going to have a talk with him. And by that, he's not far from the kingdom of God. How many of us then wants to be responsible for quenching, for squashing that ember of of hope, that ember of truly seeking because we want to be legalistic, because we want to be right, or because we come at it from a defensive viewpoint because we know who they are. I'd rather be open. I'd rather take all the slings and arrows and rocks and dirty names and everything you could throw at me if I could just find that one whose heart I could soften by not coming back at them, by not being as the world, but by truly loving them. That's where I want to be. I hope that's where you want to be too, because that's the message here today. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your spirit is alive and in me. And I thank you that by your spirit, I know how to navigate this world that is so difficult and getting harder every day. It's getting harder every day to love my neighbor because I seem to know more about my neighbor's viewpoints than I ever did before. And it's so hard to show love when I judge where their heart is. Help me to not judge where another's heart is. Help me to see them the way you see them as a child who is near to the kingdom. Help me to be the one to take them by the hand and lead them just a little bit closer. And not by my argumentative attitude or by my actions somehow or another drive them further from the kingdom. So Father, help me to have love for my neighbor, the kind of love that is the greatest commandment. 
And the only way to have that is to hear your voice. So, Lord, I just pray that your voice, that voice of the Holy Spirit, just blows up in my mind greater than ever before. I pray a greater than ever ability to hear the Holy Spirit in my life. I want that, Lord. I want the Holy Spirit to guide me. I want the Holy Spirit to walk me into situations where I can reflect the love of Christ. I pray that the Holy Spirit gives me strength far beyond what I have. And I pray that that bears fruit in the kingdom and in my life. Father, I praise you this day and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, guys, we're going to take communion now. And when we take communion, we are saying yes. All the scripture that we just learned, the words of Jesus, when we take communion, we're not just remembering what he did for us. We're remembering why he did that for us. He gave himself on the cross for us so that we could have eternal life, so that we could receive the Holy Spirit and by that reflect that love to the world. So when we take communion, we're saying yes. I hear the teaching. I hear your words. I hear your spirit in me. And I accept that mission to reflect the love to this world that desperately needs it. And you're saying, Lord, use me. Here I am. So when you're ready, we have two stations. We have one here, one here. And then we have self-serve over there against the wall if you want to serve yourself. The one against the wall is juice. Up front is wine. But we'd be happy to serve you. But as you do it, just prayerfully ask. Be bold enough to say, Lord, today, walk me into a situation where I can exercise what I just heard, where I can exercise that greatest commandment through your Holy Spirit. Are you bold enough to actually pray that prayer? Lord, today, walk me into that place. If not, we have prayer team in the back. Look for somebody with a prayer lanyard. And you can pray for anything. I'm just guiding you with a suggestion. But we have people in the back. If you want somebody to pray with you, seek one of them out. But let's, let's be intentional about our response here. And as we worship, let's just thank an almighty God who loves us more than we deserve. Amen? Thank you, guys.